0: One of the things I love to do, uh, at least at some point each summer during the summer months, is Take a few weeks and look at some of the the psalms. I mean, I've never quite had the courage of, say, let's start at the beginning and go through all 150 psalms. What are we doing for the next decade, right? That kind of... So I haven't really done that, but I like to take a sampling at least of some of the psalms, and when I return, we're going to be looking at some of the psalms that are called Psalms of Ascent, and they are kind of... You know, the Old Testament paradigm, so to speak, for salvation was the exodus, The very fact of Israel being liberated, being delivered by a deliverer, all foreshadows what God has done for us in Christ. Theirs was the physical deliverance from the nation of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Ours is from bondage of sin and hell and death. But it's an exodus. It's a liberation. And we're liberated. We're delivered. Think about this in the Christian life. We're delivered into the wilderness. The wilderness on the way to the promised land, but walking... For the Old Testament saints who was depending on things like the manna from heaven, being led by the Spirit of God, the glory of God coming down in the form of a cloud or a pillar of fire leading them. We walk in the power of the Spirit on the wisdom. And there are a set of psalms, they're called the Psalms of Ascent, that were the pilgrims' journey journeying on their way to Jerusalem, on their way to the house of the Lord, on their way to the dwelling place of God. And when I return, we're going to be looking at several of those psalms before we begin a series later in the fall. What I want to do this morning, though, is explore the beginning of the journey, the first psalm, Psalm 1. So before we do, let's pray and ask by the Spirit of God that he would open our hearts and minds and illumine the meaning of the word to us. And then we will look at Psalm 1. Father, may the Spirit of the Lord be upon us to counsel and guide and lead us into all the truth. We ask, Father, your help in understanding that your word would be clear to us and its application to our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one more time, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand as we read together Psalm 1. Hear the word of the Lord. that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Mark Futato is an Old Testament professor down at Reformed Seminary in Orlando, and he likes to say that the Psalms as a whole are a manual for abundant living through godly living. Okay? The Psalms, now remember what they were. They were the hymn book. They were the prayer book, the worship book for the Church of the Old Testament. And as such, they were a manual for abundant living through godly living. In other words, they were a manual for worshiping God, and as a result of that worship of God, for human flourishing. Now, it is really interesting, and we need to approach this as we approach the Psalms, to understand them correctly, a principle of Christian growth. In the New Testament, we read out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, or work out your salvation with awe and wonder, for it is God who is working in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. In other words, a couple principles of that. One, we're not to be passive. There is something we are to do. There's effort involved. But look at what the effort is at. Notice carefully the words. We are to work out our salvation. Does not say work for. In other words, you can't work out what you already don't have. You can't work out what you don't possess You can only work out what is a part of you, and therefore is to be worked out. When you read the Psalms, remember, if you're part of the church, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the gift of salvation by God's grace alone. But there is something for us to do in working out, if we're going to flourish as Christians, and for that matter, flourish as human beings, there's something for us to do working out what God has and is working in. Now, a couple of just kind of introductory comments just for us to understand the structure and the text of this psalm. Psalm 1 is joined with Psalm 2 to actually form the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. And I guess because of the fact that you all don't want to sit here for two hours, and I'm ready to go on vacation. I'm not preaching on both psalms. So you're just getting Psalm 1, But no, for your notes, you could take this down. Jeff, who's leaving for two weeks, said Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 form the introduction to the Psalms. Okay? They do that. And the two Psalms are linked together by several key things in a number of different ways. First of all, they're bound together by the word blessed, which if you look, it's the very first word in the first line of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who, and we'll get to this later on, doesn't do a series of things. But it's also the first word in the last line of Psalm 2. They are also linked together by similar endings. Verse 6 of Psalm 1 uses the words way and perish in reference to those who do not live in harmony with God's way. In other words, they perish, they don't flourish. And chapter two verse, uh, Psalm 2, verse 12, uses the same two words in reference to any who would refuse to submit to the Lord's authority. Who would refuse, as Psalm 2 says, to serve the Lord with fear, to kiss the Son, to take refuge in Him. And then lastly, there's an interesting wordplay which ties the two psalms together. In Psalm 1-2, we're told that some people meditate and in Psalm 2, one, we we're told others plot. Now, we would think meditate and plot, those are two different things. But let me tell you something, same Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for plot is the same word that is used for the word meditate. In other words, in Psalm 1, people are meditating. They're thinking deeply. They're reflecting. They're chewing on how they can delight in the word of God, delight in the law of the Lord. Where in Psalm 2, they're doing the same thing. They're plotting, they're meditating, they're thinking deeply, they're reflecting on how they can plot against the Lord and rebel against Him in vain. So in other words, Psalms 1 and 2 form an introduction to the whole book of Psalms, also in teaching us how to flourish, how to enjoy abundant living in worship of the Lord through godly living. And they contain a remarkable promise that claim or promises, that blessedness or abundance comes to the person who has learned to meditate. And so we're going to talk some this morning on what it looks like to meditate, to delight, because meditation is the means this text teaches us of working out what God has worked in. Meditation is the practical tool, if you would, of how to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'll give you this illustration. When I first came to Christ, it was through the ministry of young life. And then I was discipled. So I was 18, 19, 20 years old. And being taught some of the spiritual disciplines, fellowship and prayer and the word. Now, remember we got to the word. And they gave us an illustration. They called it the hand illustration. They said, look at your hand. And your hand has five fingers. And they said, this is the way you are to take in or to absorb the word. And they said, you read the word, and then you study the word. You hear the word. You memorize the word. And lastly, you meditate on the word. Now, a lot of us, I think, read the word, right? Got the Spruce Creek Bible reading plan. I know there's some of you, I sit there and go, interesting, we're looking at the life of Gideon and studying judges. Some of us, we read the word. You're all here, captive audience. None of you have left yet. Praise God for that. You know, you're hearing the Word. You study the Word. I know we've got some biblical scholars out there that like to have your commentaries and your Bible dictionaries, and you study the Word. Memorize the Word. We're probably teetering on the edge a little bit here. You're like, Jeff, you're, you're pushing it now. But now, how often do we really meditate on the Word? Let the text of God's Word seep into our bones where we chew on it. Over and over and over again. And yet, here is the psalmist saying, the key to human flourishing, abundant living in relationship with God, in worship of God, is blessed is the man whose delight, who doesn't just submit, who doesn't just serve, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he absorbs it, he chews on it, he meditates on it. Once every six months? No, day and night. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about meditation. Now we're at the beginning of the journey. We said Psalm 1 is an introduction to the entirety of the psalmist. At the beginning of the journey, we learn three things about the journey that I just want to briefly go through. We learn about the importance of the journey. We learn about the promise of the journey. And then finally, we'll get to the meditation part, the method, if you will, of the journey. The importance, the promise, and the method of the journey. Take a look with me at a couple things very briefly in this first point on the importance of the journey. First of all, I want you to notice the picture of blessedness. Let's define what blessedness is in this psalm because you've got this long sentence beginning in verse 1, which begins with the word blessed, and in Hebrew, it's the word ashrei, which means happiness, but it's really a whole lot more than happiness. See, we think of happiness, and and we're so superficial in our lives. We think of happiness, and we go, I am blessed if I found a good parking spot when I go out to lunch. How blessed are we to be able to park so close to Texas roadhouse? Or if you're really superficial like Jeff, but thinks he thinks deeply, how blessed Are we that the Yankees won the second game of the doubleheader last night after I was feeling so cursed that they lost a first game to those lowly Kansas City Royals last night? We speak about blessing in these very surfacy, superficial, and can I say utterly, utterly non-biblical ways. Because what blessing means, what that Hebrew word, ashray, means, it's much more than happiness. Yes, it's translated happiness, but it means total fulfillment. It means wholeness. It means a sense of of integration. It means flourishing. And if you think about it, isn't that flourishing, that sense of happiness, what all of us are looking for in life? I mean, let me just give an illustration. Think of us as parents or even as grandparents. Parents, let me ask you this question. And grandparents, think about it this way. Do you put your child or do you watch your child or grandchild in their sporting events, their baseball game, their softball game? Do you sign them up for piano lessons and attend their recitals? Do you guide them through life? Do you sign them up for dance? Do you guide them through school with the hope that they're going to be miserable? Is that what you're kind of hoping for? No, we do it because we want them to flourish. We want them to succeed. We want them to be happy. Our desire is for their flourishing. Now, that's us as parents. Think about God as our parent, as our father. Even the Garden of Eden, the home of our first parents, Adam and Eve, was a place of unhindered and uninterrupted joy and flourishing. Even when the probation and the prohibition was given to them, how did the prohibition begin? See, I've given you all these trees that are good for food. We forget that. We immediately go, oh, but see this one we can't have. I can't have that one? Um, You're forgetting all over here. We want to focus on the one We were created for flourishing. We were created for happiness and well-being. But let me push this now a bit further. Because in this psalm, we see that blessedness, this sense of flourishing, this happiness, this wholeness, is the complete opposite of perishing. Blessedness is the total opposite of perishing. Look at the clues within the text that the psalm gives us to figure this out. We have to realize when we're reading the psalms, we're reading poetry. And so it's through these poetic symbols and metaphors and imagery and the structure where the meaning is conveyed. So for example, the word in Psalm 1 for blessed, that first word, and the last word is perish, as far apart as you can in the Psalms, so that through that structure, the psalmist is communicating they are total opposites. Also... Another point we realize, you can't realize in English, but you pick it up in Hebrew. In English, the word for blessed is the Hebrew word ashray, which begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the word for perish is the Hebrew word toved, which begins with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So once again, not in this direct propositional way, but in this poetic, beautiful way, the psalmist is saying, Look at Ashrei and look at Toved. They are as far apart as you can get. And why is he doing that? So that through the structure of the psalm, the psalmist is conveying this is an important journey. So in other words, here's the first point, and I think it's pretty simple. Are you paying attention? We're at the beginning of the journey, and only your life and blessedness is at stake here. Low stakes, not much. What do you think? That's the first point. Next, to understand what's promised here, the promise of the journey. Take a look at what's promised here. We have to, again, continue to look at the picture of blessedness. And again, I've got to push this a little bit because our natural, I hear how I talk, I hear how we talk. We're so dialed in to defining blessed circumstantially. And we have to be very, very careful because that is as far from the meaning of the psalm as you can get. Okay? It's very easy. We read verse 3. Okay? This gives us the meaning of what it means to be blessed. Look at what verse 3 says. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. So when it says in all that he does he prospers, what does he prosper in? He prospers in his treeness. Prosper... Is the psalmist interested in your success, your flourishing, your prosperity? You better believe it. Does he define it the way we do? Not even close. He defines it as being like a tree planted in streams of water. I remember when we lived in Oklahoma. And we loved our time in Oklahoma. One of our favorite things living in Oklahoma was going out and seeing the expanse of the sky. It felt like you could look forever. Forever. But I'll be honest with you. Evie and I missed the trees. We're from the East Coast. We had lived in the Northeast. We're used to pine trees and oak trees. And we came back, and even when we bought our house, we saw the neighborhood with overhanging trees, and we went, trees! We, I didn't even think about what the house looked like. I was just like, trees! We were excited about trees. Friends, the psalm is promising the promise of the journey is success, blessedness, flourishing, as you'll be like a tree. Now, what's a tree like? First of all, a tree endures. It has substance. It has stability. It lasts. It's rooted. It's not blown away. When the wind blows, a tree may bend, but it won't be blown away. As a matter of fact, what the contrast is in this psalm is between a tree planted in water, enduring, enduring, stable, rooted, strong, lasting, secure. And the perishing are called what? Chaff, like the wind blown away into oblivion. Unknown, irrelevant, insignificant. The very things we fear and we dread in life. Underneath all our sin is the sin of our fearing that will be forgotten. Insignificant, not known. That's chaff like compared to or contrasted with being like a tree. Second, second characteristic of a tree is it's productive, it yields its fruit in season. Now, to me, it's extremely interesting that the psalmist would remind us that the tree yields its fruit in season. Because think about this this is extremely realistic. It would be so easy to read this psalm and to read it as prosperity, success. That kind of stuff is always promised without exception for good behavior. Kind of like if I do A, B happens. Why am I repeating it? That's our default mode. We think about this. If I have my quiet time, I'll have a good day. If I tithe, and deacons don't have, what my mother always called it, a conniption. Don't have a conniption. I still want you to tithe. But the promise is not, if I tithe, I will be rich. That's not the definition of success or prosperity. What this says is you will have your fruit in season. Which means there are cycles to the manifestation of fruit. A tree that is rooted. See, that means you will even have growth through the barren times. Through the times that are dry. The times where you feel like you're going through your dark night of the soul, where is God? Is He distant? Where is He gone? Can I tell you something? They may be your greatest time of growth. Even though the fruit may be unseen, it's germinating underneath because you're rooted in the water. During times that to you may look utterly, utterly barren may be your times of deepest growth to yield its fruit in season when it's ripe, when it's the right time. And friends, isn't that more substantive? Think about it this way. Isn't that more lasting, enduring, substantive than just superficial, material, external prosperity? See, again, when we think about it compared to chaff, it lasts. Challenge yourself here. Ask yourself the question, to what degree am I controlled by my circumstances? To what degree am I dominated? Am I controlled? Not do I experience... We all experience mourning, loss, anxiety, different things. But there's a difference between feeling the pain of that, experiencing it, and being controlled by it. Being controlled by fear. Being controlled by by what other people will think. Being controlled by anxiety. Being controlled by worry. Being controlled by anger. See, think about this. If we looked at the importance of the journey, what is the promise of the journey? The promise of journey is simply being like a tree. Which leads us to our last point. How do we get there? What is the method for the journey? I have to tell you, I'm completely indebted to Tim Keller for his teaching on meditation. I shared with you kind of my old young life illustration. And I was kind of like, yes, there's the hand illustration. And I was like, hear the Word of God, read the Word of God, study the Word of God. You should see my library. You know how many books I bought by to study the Word of God? Even memorize the Word of God, meditation. Where did that go? Until I read Tim Keller's book on prayer and started looking at some of his teachings... On meditation. And it utterly, utterly awakened me to the importance of it. And I'm completely indebted to his teaching. I'm going to pass some of that on in terms of this. And before getting to some of the specifics and the how-to in the method of meditating, I want you to notice something that is being taught here. The psalmist begins by outlining what we should avoid. If you look at it, he begins using three verbs in terms of avoiding. What does he say? Walk, stand, and sit. The walking, you're moving, leads to what? Standing, being settled. Being sit, you're really settled. You're immovable. And so these three verbs are kind of, the psalmist here is portraying the downward spiral of what leads to becoming like chaff. And then he links the three verbs to three key nouns. Counsel, way, and seat. Seat. And he's using the three metaphors, again, using the imagery to convey three things in this downward spiral, obviously to do what? Motivate us to avoid these things. And so what does he say? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. What does that mean? The first step, walking in the counsel of the wicked, means listening to the advice or the influences of the world to, co- to things that don't submit to the authority of the Word of God. Then to stand in the way of sinners means you're not just listening to their advice, but you're standing now in their patterns of behavior. You're now influenced to the point that you're behaving like they're behaving. It has now impacted how you live, which of course the downward spiral is completed to where you're immovable. You sit down and we can't budge you out of that seat of scoffers. The scoffers being the arrogant, the pride. Those that Psalm 2 say are plotting in vain against the Lord and his anointed. And so the psalmist says, blessed is a man who avoids that. Who doesn't fall in the downward spiral of yielding to negative influences, corrupt behavior, or arrogant attitudes. But who has learned to delight in the law of the Lord. How? By meditating on it. Day and night. So what does meditation look like? Dr. Keller says, he starts and he says, he makes an excellent point. He says, there are two kinds of prayer. Both are necessary. And he calls them calling and answering prayer. And he says, calling prayer is when you make the phone call. You start the conversation. So you may start with, God, I need you. Help. God, I sinned forgive. God, I want this. I pray for this. Or maybe you're really not selfish. God, this other person wants this. But it's calling prayer. It begins with you making the call. And Dr. Keller points out that's a very important part of prayer. Don't dismiss it. Don't leave it. But it is not the whole of prayer. And he goes on to say, answering prayer is where God starts the conversation from his word. He chooses the subject, be it praise, be it adoration, be it confession, and you answer on the basis. You've listened, you've heard, you've taken in what God has said, and then you respond. You answer in prayer. So for example, if he says something wonderful, you respond in prayer with praise and adoration, or if he says something convicting, you respond with confession, And this is the point he says. He says meditation is answering prayer. It is thinking and reflecting about the text of God's word until you sense God saying something to you in it and then you respond. He goes on, he says the key metaphor that's used here is a tree planted in the water. Think about this. If the tree is planted in the water, it's drawing life. It's drawing sustenance from the water. Dr. Keller says, he says, if all you do is Bible study, all you do is Bible study, which means you're learning the truth, you're studying the doctrine, you're recounting the doctrine, you kind of write the truth down in your notebook, and then you close the book up for later, he says, that's kind of like being the tree that sees the water and basically says, hi water, how are you doing over there? You are not planted in the water, and if you're here... And the water's over there, how's the life going to get into you? You have to be in the water to draw from it. And that's where he says meditation is the key. Because he says in meditation, he says in study, what are you doing in study? You're approaching the text and you're asking the, you're doing the observation, interpretation, application. You're asking what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? In meditation, the text is asking you questions. The text is going, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In meditation, it thinks about and reflects on the implications of the truth of the text. It says, if this text teaches such and such, if this text teaches this, what are the implications of that for my life? So the text asks you questions like, if I really believe this, how would I be different? Think about this. If I really believe... Let's just meditate on one text. Let's take an example. You want to do homework, friends? Hey, I'm going on vacation. I'm pretty excited. I'm going to give you homework. Let's meditate on 1 Corinthians 13 for a second. Okay? And let's let 1 Corinthians 13 search your heart and my heart. Let's let it search us and know us. One phrase out of... 1 Corinthians 13 says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. Let the text ask you you questions. Like, do I prioritize anything in my life ahead of love? Because he's about to, the text, the authoritative and errant word of God is about to say, love is the most excellent way. Does the text meditate on it for a second? If you do study, you just kind of go, hey, point one journal, love is the most excellent way closed no streams of water there but if you let it ask you questions basically say how will my attitude be different how will my actions be different how will my thoughts be different if I really believe the truth of this text how is this challenging me what is the danger and I start to met see I'm chewing on I'm absorbing what are the dangers of my forgetting that love is the most excellent way What are the dangers if I make other things more important than love? The method of the journey is meditation. But then one last thing. So far, I've only given you what verse 2 says. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And I even gave you 1 Corinthians 13 as our homework. We just delighted in the law of the Lord. How are you doing? Did you just delight in that? Did that just overjoy you? That I basically said, there's the law of the Lord. Love God. Love people. How are you doing? Doing well? I don't know about you. I'm not doing so well. Because you know what? I don't measure up to that. Which is why, let me ask this question. How often do we really delight in the law of the Lord? Really just overjoy? Jeff, give us more law. That's what I want. I'm praying this morning for your sermon that I'm going to get more law. That's what I wanted. The sermon disappointed me if I didn't get more law. I'm delighting in the law of the Lord, right? Come on, some of you are smiling. You're not getting sarcasm at all? We're kind of like in the scripture. Think about it in the scripture. You know, one of my favorite scriptures is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah, he gets a picture of the law of the Lord. He goes into the temple, and it's filled with smoke, It's a picture of the sovereignty and the kingship and the majesty and the splendor and the glory of God. And the seraph are flying around and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what does Isaiah do? He runs up and he says, yes, the glory of the Lord. I'm delighting in it. I'm drawing near to it. No. He's struck down calls a curse on himself. Woe is me. He doesn't sit there and say, I've fallen short of the glory of God. He says, I'm cursed. I'm dead. I'm ruined. I'm finished. I'm at the end of myself. I'm through. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. And then what does God do? He initiates that the seraph would go to him and taking the coal from the live altar, the place of sacrifice, and physically touch it to his lips. And he says, see, your sin is atoned for. It's forgiven. Your guilt is removed. See, friends, why do we not delight in the law of the Lord? Because we need to see what the law points to, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dr. Keller makes the point, in John chapter 4, you've got the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that he can give her some water that would cause her to never thirst again. And of course, she yes! She knows something about this thirst. I want that. Give me some of that. And he says, you're looking at him. I am that water. I am that living water. How can Jesus offer the living water to her and to us? It's because on the cross he experienced thirst. One of his words, so to speak, his final words from the cross were the words, I thirst. Why did he say the words, I thirst? What was happening to him? What was happening to him, body and soul, at that moment? Dr. Keller makes the point he was becoming chaff. He experienced chaff. He was being blown away into oblivion. Our sin, our breaking the law of God, our not keeping the law of God in every detail was being absorbed into him. He was becoming like chaff, being blown away, driven away by the wind so we could become trees. Friends, you have not meditated until you've meditated on Jesus The word become flesh. If you meditate on the word in general, it will not change you. Only the gospel of Jesus will make you like a tree planted in the water. And Jesus became like chaff so you could become that strong, fruit-bearing, enduring, substantive tree. Friends, learn to meditate on who Jesus is and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to meditate, that we would not be satisfied with mere just kind of settling for. And I'm not saying we shouldn't study the word or study doctrine, but that we wouldn't just look at the mere doctrine and the mere study, but that we would meditate and chew on what Jesus has done for us. We would think to ourselves, what does this say about me? How would this change me if I recognized Jesus was blown into the wind like chaff so that I could be like a tree planted in the water? Forgive us for our small vision and give us greater vision for ourselves and for the church. In Jesus' name, amen.